Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and talk about what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Henlon, and this episode I'm joined by science communicator, researcher, and events guru, Isabel Kingsley. Welcome to the podcast, Isabel. Thanks, James. Now, we're in a bit of a science communication golden age. You can get science information everywhere on social media, on YouTube, on blogs. You can follow scientists themselves on social media, all that kind of stuff. So surely we've got science communication down to a fine art. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't sound very confident there. <laughs> Look, it's great that we can find science information everywhere. Mm. It's also maybe not so great. Um, and I'm glad that there are a lot of science communicators out there. Um, but do we have it down to a fine, fine art? Um, I would say no. I, I think we still have a lot um, to learn and a lot of refinement needs to go into it. In terms of how it's presented, how we're getting complex ideas across, what are, what are we missing? <laughs> uh, look, there, there are a lot of people who are excellent at getting complex information across. Mm. Uh, it's more along the lines of we don't really know what impact our communication is having on public audiences in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we don't know those impacts, because we don't know if we're being effective or not, uh, then we don't really know what works and what works best and how to improve our efforts. So, yeah, I guess we can get complex information across, but but so what? I mean, we're talking about science communication in terms of public engagement and things like that, not necessarily in the classroom and things. How do we, how do we know if we're getting things across other than people enjoying having a scientist talk to them or downloading podcasts or whatever? Is, is that a good enough metric to say, yep, it's being downloaded? Well, uh, I mean, it depends on your objective, right? Mm. So if your objective is to inform people about different scientific topics, uh, then a good metric is to, yeah, then a good metric is to know that this many people downloaded the podcast or this many people went to the website mm. or these many people engaged with a social media post. If your objective is to improve uh, understanding of science, then the metric of knowing how many people attended something, it doesn't mean anything mm. because you don't know if you actually improved understanding. If your uh, objective is to increase engagement in science, then that metric as well doesn't work. You want to know... Um, how are people engaging and what differences those those things are making to mm. their behaviors. So it always really depends on the objective of the science communication. So this is your research itself, actually seeing if science outreach is effective at getting information across and engaging people with science. Yes, that How is. How on earth do you measure this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I guess, so... I'm a former teacher. Mm -hmm. I used to teach um, 
high school science and French <laughs> back in <laughs> back in Canada, uh, and and so I'm mostly interested. The teacher in me is is interested in uh, learning. Mm. So my thesis right now, I'm doing my PhD at the University of New South Wales measuring the impacts of science communication but on public understanding of science or I guess some <laughs> it's the same thing as like scientific literacy mm. so what are people learning from these communication activities that we're doing uh, and measuring learning is a little bit tricky I mean mm. how do you know if someone has improved their understanding of a certain aspect of science. Um, how do you demonstrate that and how do you measure that? So that's that's what I've been trying to do these last three and a half years. Are you giving people exams <laughs> to do? How are, <laughs> <laughs> are you measuring whether they're taking inf information? Well, so I, I've actually really struggled mm. to do, to figure out how to assess this. I mean, teachers do it all the time, right? Teachers assess student yeah, learning. and give them tests at the end of the week exactly. or the end of the year. Yeah. But are tests really the best way to measure? And what are you measuring in a test? For example, if you're asking someone um, true or false or multiple choice questions, are you measuring understanding or are you measuring knowledge mm. or are you measuring their ability to remember something which is not the same as understanding so i took an approach to measuring this by doing two things i gave people a, a bit of a test before and after a science communication event mm -hmm. and i asked them the same questions before and after and the questions were, so um, I had what we call Likert scale uh, questions. So they're statements. Um, and then you either agree or disagree with that statement. Mm -hmm. But I also asked them open-ended questions, asking them to explain certain things about science and how scientists do their work. So I call that the nature of science. And then... Uh, I looked at the rating scales and I analyzed those using statistics. But I thought, I think that we can get something a bit deeper and actually assess understanding from those open-ended questions. So those written responses that people gave me. But how do I pull that out? Mm -hmm. So I got a little bit creative um, because, you know, science is all about creativity. <laughs> And I found these two computer software that I thought that I thought would really help. So one of them is called Invivo, and it's a content analysis software. And it uh, you can use it to draw out the thematic trends in written responses. So I used it to find out what people were saying about the nature of science. And then I used I I decided I'm going to psychoanalyze these written responses. All right. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to go <laughs> deep. <laughs> so I used the text analysis software uh, that psychoanalyzes text. And that way I wanted to find out how students and, and adults, because I also did adults, um, studied adults, 
how they were thinking about the nature of science implicitly mm. because the language um yeah language is like the most reliable method that we have of conveying our thoughts and emotions to others and there's a lot of psycholinguistic research out there that shows that the way we use language and words really reflects a lot about our implicit uh, thoughts and beliefs and cognitive processes so being able to use that psychoanalysis software to draw out how people were thinking about it really pulled out some interesting things in their responses. And that is how I was able to measure understanding compared to knowledge from those scale questions. All right. So the people going into this uh, science communication activity, did they know there was going to be pre and post testing? Yes. Yes. So they could potentially be affected by that and sort of, you know, they'd, they'd go in expecting that I have to pass a test at the end type of thing. But by doing this extra analytical step, you're, I don't know, in a way, overcoming that a bit. Well, that was, yeah, that read was between the, the lines as opposed to reading exactly what they're s rabbiting out to you. Yeah, that was the hope. I mean, there's limitations to every, every study, right? Mm. And, and, asking people, will you take part in this research by doing a pre and post test, um, already you're, you're influencing, mm. you're having that influence, right? It, it does create some kind of bias. So by looking at their implicit res uh, responses and doing that through psychoanalysis, um, sorry, then you are reducing that bias a little yeah. bit. Yes, but that is still there. What was the activity you had them doing? Well, I did the test on a few different things. Uh, so I did one study where I measured uh, adults' responses uh, before and after a National Science Week event. Mm -hmm. So National Science Week events are, are often just um, shorter term, like one hour activity or event or so for example um, a lecture at a university or at a museum or um, a, a pub event um, or like a comedy event or something like that right so I did that with adults but I also had a sample that I studied um, of year eight students who went to um, they took part in a one day immersive experience down in Melbourne where they become Mars astronauts okay. and go onto a simulated surface of Mars and conduct a scientific experiment and then come back to Earth uh, <laughs> into the lab, analyze their samples with state-of-the-art equipment and then write a written report. And so they do, sci like, they go through all aspects of scientific practice from beginning to end mm -hmm. and getting them to do that test before and after to see what impact that kind of experience mm -hmm. has on them. Given that this research you're doing is focused around things like National Science Week and National Science Week events, mm -hmm. I imagine this means a hell of a lot to you given that you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot to do with these events for many, many years. You founded the Sydney Science Festival. Yes, yes. Uh, a few years ago in 20, 2015, I mean, Sydney was doing all kinds of really fantastic events for National Science Week. 
all over the city. Mm. Um, but we, uh, at the time I was working at the Powerhouse Museum, and we were having a conversation with uh, the people at Inspiring Australia who run National Science Week. And we thought it would be great if we could pull all those amazing uh, events that everyone's doing in Sydney and bring them all under an umbrella of of a festival mm. um, and kind of bring that all together. So um, so I said, yeah, let's do it. So funded uh, the Sydney Science Festival and it has just taken off. I mean, this year the festival had over 200 events and I think, I think 85,000 people attended events all over the city so it's it's you know going going strong but that is actually when I decided that I wanted to do some research mm. is I was doing all this science communication and putting on all these events with all these amazing partners and I really didn't know what impact those events were having and I thought wouldn't that be interesting? And then again, the teacher in me was like, "I wonder, if, I wonder what people are learning out of mm. this." Um, and so that just led to my research. So if ever, if anyone's ever been to one of the live in situ science podcasts, mm-hmm. they can blame you because we started them because <laughs> of the Sydney <laughs> Science Festival. So Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> we'd never done I live didn't podcasts before, and then the Sydney <laughs> Science Festival happened. <laughs> Well, uh, great. <laughs> I mean, I know that you got, I, I was actually talking to someone ab- about the podcast and I said that you had been around forever because I remember you guys the first year we did the festival being on board, but that's when it started. <laughs> when did we start? This podcast started in about, yeah, but 2015. And then I think our first live one was 2016, I think. That's amazing. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got we got asked to do one for the Sydney Design Festival. Yes. Which, you know, I'm biased. Sydney Science Festival's way better. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't say. <laughs> I could get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good point. Cause I, I feel that as well doing all this outreach stuff. At the end of the day I do it because I enjoy it and I find it you know personally rewarding. But the only real metrics you have to go by are things like how many people bought tickets, mm-hmm. how many people downloaded a podcast. And then if you think about that too much, you go, well, what does that even matter if it's not actually engaging people and, and getting that across to them? Yeah. So is that a huge you know, driving factor for you making the shift into research? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the same, absolutely the same for us. We were counting bums on seats Mm. which is our favorite metric Mm. because we love to say that an event or uh, some kind of initiative or effort was successful because it had that many people I mean I just did it now I said the festival had 85,000 people this year that you know like it's just is part of what we think is success right Um, but also evaluation is just so often an, an afterthought. I mm. am so guilty of that. I remember uh, putting on this really big event at the museum and the day of, uh, just a few hours before, I was talking to my supervisor and he said, uh, 
we're evaluating this, right? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And then ran to my desk, got on SurveyMonkey, put a few questions together and thought, I'm going to send this out to people. And that was my evaluation mm. for that event. So what did I get out of that? Well, I found out that um, people had fun, uh, that people said that they learned something new. I don't know what they learned, but they said they learned <laughs> something new um, and that they would recommend it and come back for something else. Mm. But what, what did I actually really learn about the impact of my event? Nothing. Mm. So, yes, that is how... That is unfortunately how a lot, I mean, evaluation is, is often just an appendix and mm. um, we don't think about it. We forget about it. We tack it on last minute and we just really don't know how to do it very well. And that's not a criticism because we're not, I mean, now I'm a researcher, but at the time I wasn't, I didn't know how to do that. Mm. That's not my expertise. Science communication is my expertise, not evaluation. Mm. So... Yeah, it's something that we have to think about a little bit more. And I hope that my research can do that and that I can help others think about it and make it a little bit easier for people. I think if there's anything I've learned from event surveys, it's that people don't really like filling out post-event <laughs> surveys. The <laughs> sort of response rates are, are ridiculous. No. Exactly. And that's fair enough. Like, if you go out to a fun science night at a pub, you, you don't want to fill out a survey at the end to tell them you had a good time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so it's about being creative in how else can you measure these outcomes that mm. we want to have uh, in a way that maybe isn't a survey because surveys really aren't the best way to measure. Um, yes, that's what I used for my thesis, but... I feel like I've grown uh, through this process and I now realize that, yeah, surveys are probably not the best way. Um, actually, right now, I'm I'm working with this um, company called Arludo who design really cool um, science education apps, uh, mobile apps that get kids to play video games, but these video games are essentially... Um, an experiment, a science mm. experiment. Uh, and then they look at the data and they, they it, it essentially turns the, sh the, the kids into scientists um, using this app. And so I'm interested in what are, the, of course, what are they learning? Mm. <laughs> um, and is this improving their analytic skills, especially and their scientific thinking skills? So, I thought, well, how am I going to measure that? Not using surveys, because why would a kid want to be doing a test mm. before and after? So we're we're going to be what we call um, we're going to be doing authentic assessment. So during these sessions, we get the students to interact with the facilitators of the session using a polling software. So. Uh, you know, like when you go to presentations and you're like, we're going to make it interactive and mm -hmm. pull out your phone and go to this website and here are some questions or or shoot out some words and, and then it appears on the, mm -hmm. on the presentation. We're using a polling software like that to get the kids to interact with the facilitator during the session. 
But through that, collecting their responses. So we're asking them, hey, um, what do you think? So what's your hypothesis for this experiment that we're going to do? So they put it in the app. We're collecting data. Now we have their hypotheses. Um, then we get them to look at some data and some graphs and we get them to uh, interpret that and to put it on the, on the polling software so that we can look at their responses. But now we've got that data. Mm. So it's part of the session. It's interactive. It's authentic. And we're measuring at the same time. And they don't feel like they're lab monkeys. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually love this stuff because it's, <laughs> it's cooler to write it in the app mm. and see it come up, pop up on the screen than to like put your hand up and, and say your answer. And then everyone can answer rather than just one person. Mm. And everyone's response goes up on the screen. So they feel like they're actually contributing more and participating more. But we're also learning a lot from their responses. Mm. It's going to be great to move away from the bums on seat metrics yeah. Because if you have an event that 300 people will go to, does that mean it's a better event than one that 30 people went to? Exactly. Or are they just different different audiences and different presentation styles? And uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can easily fill a 4,000 seat space mm. with, you know, if the you have Stones the <laughs> amazing <laughs> Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith speaking, for example. Um but then you might have, you know, an, an other really amazing event in a small space, for example, a cafe um, with tables and chairs. And, you know, you fit 40 people in and you have a deep discussion um, with some experts. Mm. It's just as great. Uh, but that's only 40 people. So it's a completely different experience. And, yeah, using bumps on seats as a metric doesn't reflect that. Mm. So you're kind of the perfect person to be doing this research because you've lived and breathed it and you know how all these things work. Yeah, yeah, I guess I've been on both ends. I, I've been the science communicator, um, the one actually communicating the science. I've been the producer, so the one designing those events. And now I've stepped into the research space measuring you know the outcomes mm. of that um and it's great to have been in all those spaces because i feel like i have a more holistic idea of the field and what's involved stop me if this is a simplistic question mm -hmm. but i feel like there's three personas science communicator producer researcher yeah they're pretty different temperaments <laughs> <laughs> like yes. how, how are you enjoying <laughs> how are you enjoying the pace of life going from events to research? Um at first <laughs> it was incredible cuz I thought I felt like I was a little bit on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so I left I actually left um my job at the Powerhouse Museum in with Sydney Science Festival uh, two years ago to just do this PhD full-time. And um, yeah, I remember at the time th thinking, this is kind of a little bit like a holiday because my entire days weren't driven by 
like emails yeah. pouring into my inbox and like just <laughs> running around everywhere. And it was very much today I'm sitting, I'm reading this paper and then I'm going to write this and then I'm going to think about this. And it was really calm and focused on just one thing. Um, and so it was great. I really loved it. Mm. And then about one year in, I started just getting really uh, antsy. Like, a bit I, stir crazy? Yeah. I just, I just thought, no, I need to interact with people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going yeah. crazy. So, um, yeah, so then I just started finding the whole uh, academia thing a little bit isolating and um, really was craving that human interaction and and the busyness. Mm. Um, so, which is great because now I know that I 100% want to be a researcher. Mm. But I also need to be a practitioner. And I have to have both in there. Otherwise, it, I... I'm not happy. So mm -hmm. I'm going to keep doing science communication and keep doing the, the producing and then assessing the impacts of that through the research. But both, definitely. I feel like everyone should. I feel like it should be compulsory for academics to go and live a life outside academia <laughs> because it is a very insular, isolating type of place. Yeah, yeah, And if that's all is. you know... There, <laughs> I don't like using the phrase the real world, <laughs> but you know what I mean? There's a real world out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that cannot give a lot of perspective. But I guess it depends on your personality. I mean, I realize now that I am the personality type that just really needs to be with people. Mm. Um, but, but some people just don't, don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. There are definitely people in academia that I can't see them working anywhere else. Mm. And look at them in their office, and I go, I can't see you, a retail manager, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> or running events or something like that. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, to be honest, here, my experience here at UNSW, especially, I'm I'm in the School of Biological, Environmental, and Earth Sciences. So many of my colleagues and the everyone who works here, the PhD students, the professors, the lecturers, are very good communicators mm. like I, I know that there's that that um, idea out there that scientists generally aren't good people I was going to say people persons people people yeah we're <laughs> the we're boffins you know we're the nerds in tweed yeah and uh, that they can't really communicate yeah. that well that is not my experience mm. At all. There are such great communicators everywhere around me. And, um, you know, recently I'm working with a lot of, uh, b because I'm doing, I'm, you know, straddling and doing both the, the research, but also the, the production. I chat to so many people who I think, oh, yeah, would, would you be interested in being part of this event or doing this or communicating? And everyone is so keen. I have very rarely encountered someone who who said nah mm. i don't want to do that so things are things are changing and especially here there are amazing communicators mm. in this school yeah it's interesting to hear the way you describe moving into research because with my the little experience i've had with events went the other way where i did my phd then left 
and started working in events at the Australian Museum. Yeah. And that was a huge mind-blowing <laughs> shift where all of a sudden, yeah, having to just respond to a, a shower of emails coming through. Yes. And have having <laughs> so stupid, having to answer the phone. Yes. <laughs> like before I could just go, Oh look, I'm busy, I'll deal with that person later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or having being able to prioritize tasks yep. that you do in research. You're gonna tick this off and then I'm gonna move on to this. Whereas doing events it was Everything needs to be done all at once. Yeah. Right it's now. real prioritizing. Yeah. Like, okay, wh- what is the most urgent? And there's just so, so much. I mean, I, the Australian Museum is, is you know, very busy place. I work there as well. Mm. And, um, and yeah, you, you actually really need to juggle. And there are so many balls that you need to prioritize which balls you're going to juggle. And there's about... 25 of them Mm. (laughs) yeah it's crazy but so fun and it makes me wonder now having had that experience going back into research whether that has made me feel the same way that you do and that yeah i enjoy research but i'm never going to stop doing this yeah because i i it's essential yes (laughs) and you know if the only way that i was reaching out to people was through my published papers Exactly. Yeah. That'd be a waste of time because nobody reads them things. To <laughs> to well, me. I mean, some people read that. Luckily, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really feel like our jobs as researchers aren't isn't completely done until we communicate it to a more general or broad or public audience. Um, and and to be honest, I mean. Research is funded by, you know, public pocket. Mm. And that is part of our responsibility to get our knowledge and our expertise out there and share that. And so I do feel that, I mean, yes, you and I love to do it and many people love to do it, but I also think it is part of our responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Did you notice when you shifted between these fields that there was pretty much zero overlap in your professional networks? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did that strike you as strange? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And it's really interesting, actually. I've gone to science communication conferences and there's the practitioners and the scholars. Hmm. And it's like high school. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the cool kids and like the nerds. <laughs> um, and yes, there are very few people who straddle both. Mm. Um, and because the scholars publish in scientific journals, very little of what they publish actually flows into and informs practice which is really sad. Why, why are we studying it? Why are we re- doing this research if it's not informing practice? Mm. Um, and that is one thing that I want to make sure I, that I do personally um, and help others, other scholars do as well. Mm. I mean, that's at a science communication conference 
So uh, you can kind of see how bridging that divide might be possible. How do you then bridge the divide between science communication practitioners and people at a evolutionary biology conference? <laughs> there, there's a huge divide there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yep. I mean, uh, just this week I was at the Australian Space Research Conference in Adelaide and um, gave. I was invited to, uh, very honored to give a plenary there. Uh, about education and outreach. The space community is so proactive, so keen, and so interested in education and outreach and science communication. And it was great to be able to, you know, go to that space conference and have so many people just want to, you know, ask me questions and, you know, they just, they just really want to do all this r- great stuff. And then I, th- I talked about evaluation, of course, <laughs> um, and they want to do things better and they want, they, they, they want to work with me. They want to work with others, um, like me so that they can have the most impact out of their outreach and then also be able to measure that impact. So yeah, it's about just getting out and mixing in with you know, the scientists and the, all the practitioners as much as possible. Mm. Yeah. I remember going to the launch of a large National Science Week event. wasn't one of yours. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they got, nobody could see that little smile I just gave you, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, and, but I remember it was you know, obviously science-themed, science-branded, and yep. I was there because at the time I was a science communicator. Yeah. So that's the only reason I was there. And I remember walking around the room and looking about and going, there's not a single scientist here. I know. And it's all, there's journalists and PR people and marketing people mm-hmm. and outreach people and things. And I never, I didn't bother asking around to figure it out, but I just got wondering, is it because they weren't invited or they don't think it's for them? What do we need? Do we need more scientists communicating? Or do we need science communicators working with scientists? Yes, to both. <laughs> okay. Um, your first question, uh, I I can't say because I I don't know, but I'm going to guess that there weren't a lot of scientists invited, mm. um, and that's just from personal experience uh putting on those kinds of launch events um and seeing that mm, the scientists are often secondary Mm. unfortunately because to answer your second question yes scientists need to be those who communicate as much as possible and science communicators um, need to be working with scientists a lot more closely. Mm. And I actually struggle between like calling them, you know, labeling a scientist and a science communicator because a scientist who communicates is a science communicator. Mm. Like what? But some scientists might be afraid to say that. Because there's an idea, I don't know, and 
not to put this on science communicators, but I know there are some scientists that might see that as a, I don't do kids' birthday parties. Like, <laughs> that's their perception of science communication. No. Yeah, so yeah. So how do we remove that perception in the the snooty old academics? Yes. Well, I don't know if you can change it in the snooty old ones. <laughs> <laughs> but there aren't, there aren't a lot of them. Um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, again, I was at a conference where this incredible scientist world-renowned scientist gave this talk that was about his research on chimps it was i was so pulled into it i actually had tears in my eyes it was one of the best things like presentations that i've been to in a long time but he started by saying i'm really um he was really uncomfortable and nervous presenting to a room full of science communicators because he was just a simple, he's the, his, his words, I'm just a simple scientist. And I thought, that's really sad mm. that that's how he feels in a room full of science communicators because he's much better than most of us. Um, so we, ne we need to change that. A scientist who communicates their science is a science communicator. And, um, and science communicators need to work with scientists more because I think that scientists are the ones who should be communicating science as much as possible. And that science communicators should be facilitating that rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we talk about it a lot on this podcast that a lot of the reasons scientists don't do it is because it's not simply not part of their job metrics. Yeah. S can you see a way that we could change that? Like how, if you can use your own metrics to actually show how engaged people are with these things, could that be replacing, I don't know, this is how many citations I got on my articles this year yeah um i know that s so here at unsw in the science faculty we have an amazing dean mm. <laughs> professor emma johnston and um and emma is i think change as she's an amazing science communicator and there's a real push in the science faculty here to um equip scientists to be good communicators and i think there's also work being done in cha changing those metrics so that you know scientists efforts to communicate and do outreach are are rewarded mm. and and seen as valuable um s s to be able to encourage scientists to do more so i know here it's changing. Um, I don't know about other universities, but mm. yeah, it, it is about changing the system so that um, you kind of incentivize that and then it's worthwhile. Because like I said, a lot of scientists want to do that. Mm. But when you have a lot of balls to juggle and you are prioritizing if that's one of the things that's not rewarded, then you might drop that ball. Mm. Um, but if it is, then you're going to keep it up. 
And I'm pretty sure that scientists are just sitting there waiting to be asked to do something. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I mean, they're they're doing all this great stuff, but as soon as you ask, mm. and also, I feel like s- those who are a little bit more reluctant, as soon as they do get that experience, that changes. So mm. um, for Sydney Science Festival, we had this event that we called Speed Meet a Scientist. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of my favorite events. <laughs> um, and it's essentially we would get, uh, we would ask about 25 or 30 scientists to come to the museum um, and we'd set up cafe style chairs. So little tables or little tables with a couple chairs around them. We'd set up our scientists with like a menu on the table that said like, hi, I am so-and-so, <laughs> this is my research and I come from here. Yeah. Um, and then we had like a bigger menu at the front where, um, you know, it was like, if you want to hear about this, go see this person. And if you want to chat about this, go see this person. And people would just go and sit down and speed meet a scientist and chat to them for about 10 minutes. And then we'd ring a bell and then it was like, sw- so it's like speed dating, mm. but you're not actually dating. Well, I don't know. I don't I don't think anything yeah, romantic didn't, didn't came out up. of these events, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe. Um, post-event survey for next time. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, but some of the scientists that, so long story, but some of the, some of the scientists that we got on board were like, ah, nah, like nobody mm. wants to know what I do because it's super boring. We're like, nah. It's not boring, and I'm sure a lot of people want to know. And actually, one of my friends said that, and I said, no, I think you're really going to like it. And then he came and was one of the speed speed meters, and he left, and he said, that was awesome. <laughs> I want to do it again next year. Yeah. Um, so, And that's happened all the time. One of my colleagues, uh, Frankie, she said, I mean, she, she ran this uh, event for many years. And she has heaps of scientists contacting her saying, when's the next one? That mm. was so much fun. So that reluctance sometimes as soon as as you get out there and you see that people are actually really interested in finding out what you do. And you go, oh, well, th- that was pretty fun. I'll do it again. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's immediate feedback. Yeah. That's what you do. If you just sit doing research, you don't get any feedback other than every now and again someone cites your paper. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a number, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm well, almost oh, getting close to 100 interviews for this podcast. Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't think a single person said no to being interviewed. There's been plenty of right. just being very busy, couldn't line up a time with a person. Yeah. But no one's ever kind of turned around and said, oh, it's just not really my thing. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. People Perfect listening, example. reach out to scientists, get them to do stuff. Yes, and scientists, if you want to do this, reach mm. out to producers and and yeah, just say I want to do stuff. Mm. What do you want? What do you want me to do? So you've gone from school teaching, events, <laughs> managing events, uh, presenting, researcher, yeah, pretty big jumps and career shifts. Yeah, coming up to the pointy end of the PhD. Mm-hmm. What's next? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a windy road, hey, when you kind of <laughs> summarize it that way. Um, 
It's one of those things in hindsight. It all looks like it all led from one thing to the next. Yeah. It never feels like that at the time. <laughs> no. I mean, people ask me, what do you want to be? Where do you want to be in five years? And like, I don't know. I don't do even know. Like, up? I didn't know <laughs> five years ago that I would be here. <laughs> um, wherever I end up, I guess. Um, definitely, definitely doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I've got two months left on my thesis. And then I have a sweet, sweet job here at UNSW um, doing some research uh, on gender equity. So that'll be that'll be really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it'll definitely be research, but with like one foot in research and one foot in science communication and, and education. Um, and I feel like science communication and education are essentially the same thing. One is more formal environment, one is informal. But um, yes, I, I want to do both for sure. But who knows? <laughs> Finish your thesis first. Think about yeah, it now. Later. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to find out more about your research, you have a website they can check out? I do, yeah, just isabelkingsley.com. Mm-hmm. And you're mm-hmm. at Isabel Kingsley all over social media? I am. All right. Well, thanks so much <laughs> for sitting down and having a chat. Yeah, no worries. That was great. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. We're on social media at Institute Science. And check us out, as always, at InstituteScience.com. If you like, you can support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Institute Science. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.